Well, the tactics for earthly wars often apply to the spiritual realm as well. There was a theologian named J.C. Ryle who wrote about uh, many things related to Christianity, and he wrote of the spiritual war that is occurring around us, and he said that it is a warfare of far greater importance than any war that was ever waged by man. And the war is between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In this war, Jesus Christ is going forth to conquer via the glorious gospel of grace. The Holy Spirit is bringing about conversions through the word of God, and men and women and boys and girls are being saved, forgiven, and transformed. The war has actually already been won at the cross. When Jesus cast out the previous ruler of this world, that is Satan, and Jesus rose victorious, and now the mop-up work is continuing on until, as Psalm 2 predicts and 1 Corinthians 15 teaches, Jesus brings a final end to all the battles of this war with the defeat of death itself at the end of history. Now, in the continuing battles and warfare that is taking place until that day, uh, it is a war in which Christ has been steadily prevailing for 2,000 years. Satan has not given up trying, however. And Satan is not oblivious to a variety of war tactics. And one of the things Satan has chosen to do is to attack one of the most prominent, if not uh, the most prominent, images of the gospel on this earth, and that is marriage. One of the most prominent images of the gospel is marriage. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said that marriage refers to Christ and the church. He said, therefore, quoting Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5.31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, the gospel. The referent, being Christ and the church, precedes the thing itself. Christ and his church did not come into the mind of God after God instituted marriage. You see, from the very beginning, God designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel, to be a gospel picture of Christ and the church. Therefore, to attack the ideal of marriage is to attack the gospel itself. It is to attack the gospel itself. It is no accident that, not just in our day, but throughout human history, the enemy has sought to destroy this picture, this gospel picture. Right? He has sought to mar it. Imagine you have a beautiful painting on the wall, this picture. And the course of human history has been Satan trying to destroy that, throw paint on it, rip it down, demolish it. Because what that picture does is it shows people the gospel. And so Satan has been trying to destroy this picture. Despite these efforts, the picture has remained and will remain because the referent, namely the gospel, that which marriage refers to, has been and will ever remain victorious. So the picture itself will not go away. So let us begin our time this morning as we consider what I've entitled the message, Pagan Sexuality 
versus Christian marriage. We will consider very briefly, and much more could be said, Christian marriage and pagan attempts, ultimately influenced by Satan, to undermine Christian marriage. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is quoted here in Ephesians 5.31, we can just stay right here. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now there's much here that we could break down and talk about what is marriage. And so let's briefly spend a short amount of time just defining marriage from the scripture. In this passage, this simple clause, you have the key components to a family, which is the foundational unit of society. It's built there in Genesis 2.24. You have a man leaving his father and mother, not leaving his father and father or mother and mother, but leaving his father and mother, his family, in order to form another family. And in doing that, he joins himself to a woman, not another man, in order to form a family. It's very simple, but as we have seen in our day and throughout history, it is prone to be distorted, abused, and neglected. The blessings of family and marriage preceded the fall and was deemed by God as very good. So as we look, there are four main components in this verse. You have the man who is leaving his family. And so you have in that the idea that the father and mother have raised up this man, raised up this man from from childhood to get to the point where he can leave his family and start his own. So we have in this verse the idea of rearing children and educating children and preparing them for life and their own marriage. You have then, the next phrase, shall leave his father and mother. Again, insinuating that the parents have been teaching this young man to be able to provide for himself and lead his own family. And then you have these two words, hold fast, hold fast to his wife. The idea is of covenant faithfulness. And this is where the picture of the gospel becomes so clear. I've read that it said, nowhere are we more like God in his faithfulness to us than when we are faithful to our spouses. When we have covenant faithfulness, loyalty, fidelity, when a man has that fidelity to his wife and a wife to her husband, there you have a picture of God's faithfulness to his people, more so than anything else on earth, perhaps. And so you have this idea of not just being a boy being raised and trained to leave his home, but holding fast and being committed to a woman, to his wife. And as such, then you have the creation of a new family unit with specific roles for the husband and the wife in raising up another generation to go and do the same. R.J. Rush Dooney sums it up and says, Very clearly, the purpose of God in creation was that monogamy be the standard for man. The original perfect standard saw the creation of Eve, one woman for Adam, one man. That is marriage. And of course, my favorite 
definer of things beyond the Bible is Noah Webster. And he wrote this about marriage. Listen to his definition. The act of uniting a man and woman for life. Wedlock. The legal union of a man and woman for life. Marriage is a contract, both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity. There's that faithfulness, covenant faithfulness. Till death shall separate them. Marriage was instituted by God himself. And then he gives three purposes. For the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, for promoting domestic felicity, and for securing the maintenance and education of children. And then, as in many of his dictionary entries, he quotes scripture, Hebrews 13:4, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. In fact, much of our problems in America could be solved if we simply defined our terms according to Webster again. Go back to the 1828 Webster Dictionary, which was, of course, built on biblical truths and principles. So Webster gives three practical purposes. Of course, you have the overarching idea of the gospel picturing of marriage picturing the gospel. But he gives three practical purposes. And as you think about these three purposes, if God created marriage um, for at least these three purposes and more, uh, what happens when marriage is abandoned? These three things will not occur. Number one is preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, rampant immorality, no faithfulness between one man and one woman. Without marriage, um, there is no guardrails for sexuality in a society. And we have seen and we'll see even briefly today what happens when marriage is um, undermined. Number two, promoting domestic felicity, which simply means happiness. The family, as I said, is a foundational unit of society, and to abandon marriage is to abandon societal happiness and well-being. And number three, securing the maintenance and education of children. Marriage was designed to form a family to bring up children. And it's no wonder that uh, totalitarian states seek to undermine the family and marriage in order to acquire the minds of the children and indoctrinate them in pagan philosophy. These three things and many more are great benefits to marriage. When marriage, Christian marriage is abandoned, these three things are likewise abandoned in a society. So with the fall then, we have the corruption of God's original design of marriage. And though the record, the record of the fall in Scripture is brief, we know that the key part of the devil's temptation, remember in the Garden of Eden, the devil tempted Eve and Adam was there. And the temptation was this, did God really say such and such? And a modern variation of that, you see things haven't changed. We still question God's word. And sometimes we simply say, has God ever said anything at all? Right, the modern atheistic uh, critique, if you will, if you would call it that, is that God hasn't even spoken anything. The denial of God's existence, his revelation and his word are at the heart of most modern attempts to redefine marriage, to redefine life, and to redefine a whole slew of things. What followed the fall all right, was a degenerative pattern for humanity. Sin led to more sin, which led to more sin. And this is, was certainly, uh, when it comes to marriage, 
Marriage was not exempt from the results of sin and the fall. We see the first example of polygamy in Genesis 4. We see the corruption of all mankind uh, at no, with Noah's time, no doubt including a twisting of God's design for marriage. And despite pockets of light throughout uh, the Old Testament, a continued reading of the Bible shows a continual descent into what I deem as pagan sexuality. And that is anything that deviates from Christian marriage. And I think it's proper to call it Christian marriage, even before the incarnation of Christ, because the intent all along was to picture Christ and his people. It is Christian marriage from the beginning. So the seed of the, the, the serpent, the devil sowed this chaos and confusion regarding human sexuality. And it has been a consistent part of his strategy. For 4,000 years since the fall, the digression continued. And when we read about the Christ's incarnation in the first century, at that point in history, pagan sexuality had come to reign in the Greco-Roman world. It was rampant. The fall had done its work. Satan had done his work. Sinful humanity had done their work. And the scene was a mess. And it's to this scene that we now turn as we consider the progression of the battle between pagan sexuality and Christian marriage. So as we consider the first century, 4,000 years after the fall, 4,000 years of paganism spreading and prospering, if you will, we come to the Greco-Roman world in the first century. And it's of considerable interest to consider the Greco-Roman world because that was the world into which Jesus was born, and it was the world into which Christianity began to spread and to conquer the forces of darkness. It will perhaps be surprising to some people to realize that the pagan sexuality that is being so pridefully advocated today has been around before, and it was just as disastrous then to society as it will be now. You see, the Greco-Roman world was a hotbed for sexual deviation and perversion. And without going into great detail here, uh, I want to make some uh, note some observations that Alvin J. Schmidt in his book, How Christianity Changed the World, made of the first century regarding their abandonment of Christian marriage. The, Lat- the second century Latin orator and satirist Juvenal said his society had lo- lost chastity, the goddess, by its widespread addiction to promiscuous behavior. A Roman poet, Catullus, refers to his fellow Romans practicing group sex and immorality. Emperor Caligula was given to habitual incest with all of his sisters. John Clark, in his book, Looking at Love Making the Constructions of Sexuality in Roman Art, 100 BC to 8250, depicts numerous por- portraits of sexual acts embossed in ceramic items, mosaics, drawings, and other artifacts. There were stage plays focused on incestuous behavior and some on physical mutilation. The list goes on and on, which I will spare you from. The rejection of biblical marriage in the first century led to several, several uh, very damaging consequences. Number one, what you will always find with an abandonment of Christian marriage is abortion or infanticide. The killing, the covering up 
of the good blessing that is supposed to come from Christian marriage is viewed as a curse when you abandon Christian marriage. Abortion and infanticide were rampant in the first century. Child abuse, child marriage, pedophilia, accepted and embraced even among many in the first century. The breakdown of the family ensued and eventually the Roman Empire collapsing were all related, I would submit, to the embracing of pagan sexuality at the expense of God's design for man and woman and the family. And of course, that fits perfectly with Romans 1, which says God gave them over to their debased mind and the consequences of their sin. This is the world, the first century Greco-Roman world into which Christianity emerged. The gospel went forth and with it, a clear affirmation and illumination of the Genesis 2 ideal began to change minds, began to change minds of people in the first century world. Here's Schmidt again. He says, a second century document describes how the early Christians differed from the pagan Romans by confining their sexual behavior to married life. And in this epistle, in this epistle, the epistle to Diognetes, we read, they, the Christians, marry as do all. They beget children. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They were known for their marital faithfulness and their commitment to the Genesis 2 ideal. In fact, Christian women had an enormous impact, probably disproportionate even to men, perhaps, uh, in changing the world by elevating marriage and the woman's role to its proper place. The pagan Libinius lauded the Christian women's high level of commitment and dedication to their role as wives and mothers when he said, what women these Christians have. They stood out in stark contrast to the pagan sexuality that was going on around them. And of course, they were following the counsel of the Apostle Paul and Titus, where he says, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And it was in following that instruction by the women and the men in following similar instruction to be faithful to their wives and love their wives that led to this beautiful picture of the gospel that began to prevail in the first century. The high and beautiful standard of Christian marriage was all the more evident in the face of the first century perversion and deviation that was occurring around them. And that should give us encouragement and hope in our day as we often feel as if we are living in a similar world. And in some ways we are. So our commitment to Christian marriage or any other Christian doctrine will shine forth all the more brightly amid the darkness of the paganism that is going on around us. You see, Christians have been here before and changed the world and we can do it again. And I believe if we honestly assess the transformation that occurred with the spreading of the gospel, and I have to move on for time's sake, but if we honestly assessed it, 
from the first century up until today, there's no doubt that pagan sexuality is not winning this battle. And the Greco-Roman world sort of acts like a, a, a start to the war in earnest. Christ rises victoriously. The work of, the, of spreading the gospel goes forth. And now the battle begins. And time would fail me, as I said, to uh, uh, you know, recount this battle. You know, pagan sexuality had spread over the face of the globe by the time of Christ's incarnation, his passion, his death and resurrection. You know, 4,000 years or so of paganism spreading before Christianity begins to take over the world. For example, let me just give a couple examples. Marital infidelity and other abuses were common in North America. It's from Schmidt again. He says, it seems that wherever pagan values reign, as in the Greco-Roman culture, there one finds widespread homosexuality. For instance, homosexuality, an abandonment of the one man, one woman ideal. For example, homosexuality was common among numerous American Indian tribes. Walter L. Williams, in a book that focuses on homosexuality among American Indians, sympathetically notes that the Quactal Indians of British Columbia, the Crows, the Klamaths, the Hopi, the Sioux, the Navajo, the Sunni, and the Yukots and other tribes in the United States all practice homosexuality before contact with Westerners. Williams not only conveys a great deal of empathy for the homosexual customs of the American Indians, but he also throws frequent punches at Christianity for having influenced most American Indians to believe that homosexual behavior is morally bad. And as Christians, of course, we should say guilty as charged, right? The spread of Christianity brings with it the teaching of God's law and what is good for man and woman and society. And an abandonment of Christian marriage, whether it be homosexual sin or heterosexual sin, is bad for man, bad for woman, and it dishonors God. So there's no doubt that the spread of Christianity though certainly offset at times by sinful men and women claiming to be Christians and not following God's law. However, overall, the spread of Christianity has led to an almost unbelievable transformation in the world, not least regarding marriage and sexuality. And before wrapping up with some thoughts of encouragement, let me give you one more example from history. We've looked at first century Greco-Roman world. We've looked at very briefly uh, one specific sin in abandoning marriage with the North American Indians. Let's consider India very briefly. When William Carey went to India as a missionary, he went with a vision for the complete transformation of India. He did not go simply to share a message of personal salvation and personal spirituality that would not touch on the society uh, as a whole, that would not touch on the sins and crimes that were being committed Uh, against God and against man in society. He went to India with the desire, as similar to John Knox, who said that, give me Scotland, right? uh, William Carey went to India desiring to capture all of India for Christ. And this was his vision. And he faced many, many obstacles. And he saw many consequences of the fall and paganism in India that he sought to counter with biblical truth. 
Let me briefly list a couple, and as they relate specifically to biblical marriage, Christian marriage. Number one was abortion and infanticide. Again, always in close connection with a society's view of marriage will be their view and practice or lack thereof of abortion and infanticide. When William Carey got to India, every winter um, he would go. There was, He said there was a, a, some sort of religious festival where the sea and river met. And children would be pushed down the mud banks into the sea to be either drowned or devoured by crocodiles. The children would be sacrificed, all in fulfillment of vows their mothers had made. And William Carey's concern for these victims of superstitious beastliness became known. And he compiled a report about the numbers, the nature and reasons for infanticide in in India and his report resulted in the practice being outlawed. His report resulted in the practice being outlawed because he was outraged at the evil of this infanticide that was occurring. And uh, I have a quote here. Many of these quotes come from a book by Ruth and Vishal Mangalwadi about William Carey in India. And uh, they say this, The moment of satisfaction came when Carey's group went to the Sagar Puja, which was the worship of the ocean, in 1804 to proclaim the story of God's own sacrifice. They found that due to administrative vigilance as a result of Carrie's efforts, not a single infant could be sacrificed to the goddess. What a victory. A wicked religious practice had been suppressed. Pagan sexuality led to abortion, infanticide. The gospel comes, Christian missionary, and the infanticide is brought to an end. Obviously, there's still work to be done, both in India and worldwide, but it is an amazing story of the gospel transforming the culture. But that's not all. There was also the very common practice known as sati, which was the burning of widows. When a woman's husband died, they believed that she should also die and she would be burned alive to go into the afterlife with her dead husband. Of course, not only is that a problem for the woman that she, her life is taken because her husband died, but then the children are left orphans and society continues to suffer because of that. Again, quoting from Mangalwadi's, it says, Carrie considered this practice of widows being burned a, a, a social evil uh, and spiritual battle against religious darkness and the forces of death. He prayed and got others to pray. One of his prominent prayer partners in this matter was William Wilberforce, an evangelical member of Parliament in England and the leader of the movement for the abolition of Britain's slave trade. Wilberforce struggled in prayer both for the emancipation of the African slaves and for the plight of Indian women. And Carey's great day came when, on December 4th, 1829, Lord Cavendish Betnick, after one year of careful study, declared Sati both illegal and criminal by Regulation 17 of the Bengal Code. The edict was sent to Carey for translation on Sunday, December 6th. Carey jumped with joy, abandoned his plan to preach on that Sunday in order to carry out the fast unto the Lord, spoken of in Isaiah 58. At long last, widows were legally free to live as human beings, and no longer would children be cruelly orphaned in the name of religion. Again, pagan sexuality, perversion, a twisting of God's ideal 
the societal consequences that follow the gospel coming, transforming a society. Last example from Kerry, child marriage. It's reported by the Mangalwadis that the last census of the 19th century in Bangal revealed that in and around Calcutta alone, there were 10,000 widows under the age of four and more than 50,000 between the ages of five and nine. All these widows were victims of child marriage. Again, we didn't go into it, but in the first century Greco-Roman world, this was another common thing. We would consider today, rightly, child abuse. Now, Carey sought to undercut child marriage's moral roots through the teaching of the Bible and its social roots through female education. And the child marriage was outlawed um, only in 1929 when the Child Marriages Restraint Act was introduced. But again, you have this idea of paganism spreading and the people embracing a perverted understanding of human sexuality. And Schmidt even mentions that the fact that today, in all 50 states, it is illegal to have any sort of relationship like that with a child, that abhorrence of such a thing is a direct result of Christianity having brought a moral perspective to human sexual behavior. We take that for granted today. The pagans around us take that for granted today. The fact that as a culture, we abhor the idea of child marriage or any sort of relationship like that between an adult and a child is because of the influence of Christianity on the world. We should not take it for granted that a society would have these views that it is wrong for an adult to be involved with a child because in many cultures, in many cultures, and we've already looked at a couple of them, such practices were accepted and embraced because they had abandoned God's standard. We take it for granted today. And as we conclude and think about our day and some closing thoughts, we are painfully aware that we live in a culture that in some very real ways is seeking to revert to paganism and pagan sexuality. People today are largely ignorant, as we've mentioned, of the social evils promoted by pagan sexuality in the past and how Christianity conquered them in the past. They're ignorant of that. Really, we're living with the blessings of the influence of Christianity and Christian marriage, and then we're using those blessings that have been brought, that have we've experienced as a society. We're standing on those blessings and then raising our fists to God as we seek to return to Greco-Roman pagan sexuality. It's foolish, and it shows that we have lost sight of the history of the world and the history of Christianity and even of our nation. So in closing, just a couple thoughts for encouragement and some application. Number one, I want to remind you and encourage you that Christian marriage will continue to prevail. Don't buy the lie that things have been decided with Obergefell, right? That's foolish thinking. It's the same sort of thinking that says, well, abortion's been decided by Roe v. Wade, so I guess that battle's over. You hear many people talk like that, many professing Christians, especially those in the realm of uh, civil government. Well, it's over. The marriage issue is over. The abortion issue is over. It's been decided. Those things weren't decided when Roman emperors endorsed them and the population followed in sinful frenzy in the first century. It wasn't over. The gospel came and it took time, but things were changed because the gospel is powerful to change hearts and minds and, yes, even cultures. 
all that Obergefell did in saying that, oh, you know, marriage, quote unquote, is between, can be between a man and a man, that sinful decision, which ought to be disobeyed because it goes against God's law, that sinful decision, just like Roe versus Wade, simply mean, in this regard, that there are more victories that the gospel needs to win. It's not over. Christian marriage will prevail. And we must not give up in proclaiming God's standard. That's number one. Christian marriage will continue to prevail. Don't buy the lie that things have been decided with a Burgerfell or any other foolish, fallen, pagan decision. Number two, the professing Christian culture needs to embrace Christian marriage. Specifically, not giving ground regarding cohabitation. There are many professing Christians that would strongly stand by the definition of marriage between a man and a woman, but yet would have no problem with cohabitation. But cohabitation, living together in intimacy before marriage, is contrary to Christian marriage. Mark Regnerus, a sociology professor at the University of Texas at Austin, notes that cohabitation is higher than I would have expected because it's thumbing the nose at the Christian church's vision, and really God's vision, for what marriage is. They're mimicking husband and wife with a sexual union, but they're not giving all. They're holding back. Fidelity may be there temporarily, but they haven't promised the future to each other. And again, Christian marriage, as that picture of the gospel, falls apart when the man and the woman are not holding fast in covenant faithfulness to one another. Cohabitation is missing that element that makes marriage what it is. And it is not a picture of the gospel. Cohabitation is not a picture of the gospel. Christian marriage is. Matthew Harrison gives these thoughts on abandoning the design for Christian marriage and falling into the sin of cohabitation. He says, these are some consequences. 80% of marriages begin as cohabitation fail. 80%. Live-ins are least likely to marry. Live-ins have higher separation and divorce rate. Divorce rates. Those who live together have unhappier marriages. Cohabitants without plans to marry are more inclined to argue, hit, shout, and have an unfair division of labor in the home. And live-ins often engage in extramarital affairs. Now, none of this is to say that there's no hope for those of us, as we all have sins in our past. It's simply to say that if we willingly continue to reject God's standard, we cannot expect the blessings that God has promised with obedience to his word. And we must, as a Christian culture, speak forth the standard that God has given in his word for Christian marriage. And thirdly and finally, I want to encourage you and remind you that the greatest way to defeat evil will always be with the good of the gospel, the good of God's word and God's law. Demonstrating God's law word to the world in our standard of Christian marriage and proclaiming the gospel of hope is what has changed the world before and will change it again. And will change it again. As we teach our children about marriage, as we raise up the generation and fulfillment of Genesis 2.24 so that our young men and young women can leave father and mother and begin their own families, as we do that, let us hold to the Christian ideal of marriage. You only need to look at history as if God's word wasn't enough. God's word is certainly enough. His, if he has said it, we may know with certainty 
that it is for our good. But he gives us this confirmation in history. When his word is abandoned, disaster ensues. So Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel and how we view marriage, talk about marriage, live our marriages out is, in this sense, a way in which we declare the gospel to those around us. Which is why, as Christians, we must never abandon the Christian, the ideal of Christian marriage and say it's over. Doing so would be to abandon the gospel and say, well, that battle's lost. We will never do that. Christians will never give up on God's word because we know God's word will prevail and we are on the winning side of history. One of the most ironic things that President Obama said in regards to Obergefell and the uh, sinful rebellion against marriage was that supporters of homosexuality were on the right side of history. A very, if you will, foolish thing, an historically blind thing to say. Christian marriage has transformed the world for good. Sexual perversion has brought hardship, calamity, destruction to society and families. The Christian ideal, the gospel, is on the right side of history, if you will, because Christ is winning this battle. The world's tendency to pervert Christian marriage is commensurate with the world's tendency to rebel against the gospel. However, as the gospel spreads and the spirit changes hearts and people are forgiven and they change their lives, the blessing of Christian marriage will again be experienced throughout the world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the standard you've given us in Genesis 2:24, repeated by Paul in Ephesians 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We thank you that you have created man and woman. You've created marriage. It is for our good. It is for your glory. It is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to be faithful to your word. All of us have fallen short. We have all sinned in so many ways against you. The Christian is not one who has perfectly held to your standard, but is one who has been forgiven and by your grace is endeavoring to obey your law in all things. And we preach a message of forgiveness and hope for those in our culture who, like us, have been broken by our own sin and the sin of others. But yet there is great hope as we preach your gospel, your law, your standards. And we pray, Lord, that even in our lifetime we would see Christian marriage again prevail and transform our society because we know it is a component of the Christian gospel. As the gospel comes, it impacts every area of life, not least of which the family and our, and our, our relationships with one another and the marriage relationship, that relationship of covenant faithfulness, which uh, is so important, certainly impacted as the gospel goes forth. We pray for blessings. We pray for the marriages of uh, Christians in our community. We pray for marital faithfulness and strength. We pray for young uh, men and women and boys and girls as they grow up, that they would follow your word and would be examples to this world around us and that the gospel would lead to transformation and hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.